Welcome to the weekly deep dive podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we explore the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I'm your host, Jason Lloyd, and with me is my friend and the show's producer, Nate Pfeiffer. What is up? Hey. In this episode, we're going to take a peek at how God's Word is compared to a two-edged sword. Wheat and tares, along with what it means to lay up salvation to your own soul, to your own soul, yeah. and how the soul, soul, you know how it goes. Yeah. At least it's not tuberculosis. <laughs> tuberculosis. Tuberculosis. We're back at that, huh? Back at that. Right. One right. of these days. Tuberculosis. How's that? Whatever. <laughs> All right. How the Lord answers prayers by speaking peace to your mind, and uh, also the interesting history of sacred rods. Not just in LDS, but in biblical history. So, tune in. Here we go. Let's um, let's start with the Word of God being compared to a two-edged sword. And you've seen that comparison in the New Testament, and here in Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord is saying that that His Word is is like a two-edged sword. And my my take on this maybe perhaps is a little bit different because I I look at this and I see. A key word here in how he describes the two-edged sword is its ability to divide asunder, right? And and this division, when, when I think about the Word of God, I think about creation, because God spoke and it was so, right? Vayichi Elohim, Vayichi Ken, Vayomer Elohim, Vayichi Ken, and God spoke and, and, and thus it was, and so it was. And, and so as God's speaking, his word is creating, but not just creating, but he is dividing the light from the dark, the waters from the dry land, the waters from above the earth, from the waters from below the earth. And it says even in the beginning of Genesis that the spirit or the wind or the breath of God or, or his word, right? Because you're speaking, you're speaking out the wind, the breath. Your, your breath is speaking out. So his word is moving upon the face of the waters and calming those waters and, and creating this order by dividing it. So it's, it's kind of a, a connection that I draw with creation and his power of his, his wind, his breath, to be able to establish order by dividing. And another example is when Moses is pulling the people out of Egypt, his breath or wind blows upon the Red Sea and divides it so that the people can go free. And that's that's the focus I think of when I think of the Word of God being quick or powerful like a two-edged sword or, or being able to divide asunder, is that he can cut through and divide things, spread it out, and, and create a path for, for freedom or a path for liberation to let the bondage the 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 servants the 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 ones that are captive to go free just like in Israel's case and this idea of creation and the word of god is even carried over in John in the new testament because John says in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and he goes on and he talks about the creation and this idea of the word as christ being that word but also creating the world and how and how God uses the word to create the world and and not just dividing this light from darkness but also think about the dividing of the sheep from the goats the word of God is what separates your your eternal future 
if you're following the word of God, then, then you end up being on one side of the line. And, and if you deviate from the word of God and decide to not follow it, then, then you're being divided by that word of God into a different eternal perspective. So it's not just dividing, like he says here, the, the joints or the marrow. It's not just cutting that way, but dividing even, even our fates, if you will. That word of God has that power to divide or distinguish. And as much as it makes sense kind of talking about that from a clear point of view, I kind of wanted to wrap in, and I guess it wouldn't, it just wouldn't be me if I wasn't finding some weird example to kind of tie into this deal, right? But in, in Babylonian mythology, as we start talking about creation and, and how this works together, you've got the story of Marduk. Marmaduke. <laughs> not Marmaduke, just Marduk. Just Why not Marmaduke? <laughs> because his name was Marduk. Whatever, man. <laughs> <I'll>... <laughs> Marmaduke! <laughs> so Marduk, Whatever, man. yeah, he's, he's, he's kind of the, he, he's the son of the father god. El is the father god. Mar, Wait, um, not El? Marma... Yeah, El. So you, you... so you have the two most extreme names ever, El and Marmaduke? <laughs> Hell and Marduk. All right, whatever. So you've got this whole assembly of gods. El is at the top. He presides over all of them. And then his son, Marduk, is is going to become the king of gods. He's going to be the the head of all the gods, the, the, the leader of the council, if you will. But what puts him in that position, another great name for you, Tiamat. I'm not even going to try to make fun of that one. <laughs> Sounds good. Tiamat, teapot? <laughs> not teapot, Tiamat here, she's chaos, and, and she represents this primordial, chaotic, um, in the beginning, what needed to be organized, if you will, and she's got a beef with the gods. Apparently, they're too noisy, they riot and party too much, and she wants the gods wiped out. So she's raising this army to come and destroy the gods, and the gods are a little bit fearful and saying, what shall we do? And, and Marduk stands up and says, I'll, I'll go, send me, I'll, I'll, I'll stand, be the champion here, and, and I'll face down Tiamat. We'll go toe-to-toe and we'll see how this turns out. And so they elect uh, Marduk to, to be their, their chosen one, if you will, to go and fight Tiamat, this chaos. And the interesting thing is you, you go back to that Genesis creation account when you talk about the breath of God moving upon the face of the waters or the moving upon the deep. The word for Hebrew for deep is tahom. It actually is the same root, the same word for tiamat, tahom, tiamat, the deep, this, this chaotic abyss, if you will. So this chaotic abyss or tiamat raises this army. And, and this gets kind of weird in the description of these scorpion-like men and whatnot. They, this, this army that she puts together to go face down T, um, Marduk and his army. And, and Marduk ends up being triumphant. Uh, but the way in which he's triumphant is by, by gathering these winds and shoving the wind down, down Tiamat's throat. And, and the wind is, ends up tearing Tiamat apart, and he takes this, this chaotic waters that he's destroyed, and he organizes it. And from here, he organizes the earth and the heavens, and, and this is where creation happens, and men begin to populate the earth. Got it? 
So this this is this Babylonian creation myth, and, and it's very different from what we're used to when we look at the creation account in, in Genesis, which seems very orderly and, and organized. But there are some similarities here where, where the God who created the heavens and the earth uses the wind or, or breath or spirit, because in Hebrew, ruach, which, which is the same word for wind, breath, or spirit, is what is moved upon the deep or the abyss or the tiamat, this chaos. And the word of God is what is taking this chaos and slaying it. And by slaying chaos, what you're doing is creating order. So God, the word of God, is establishing order by by slaying chaos. And that's how you slay chaos, or that's how the word of God divide it is really by division. Is the word of God is like a two-edged sword that's dividing by by dividing and separating out light from dark. And really, I mean it's no different from from when you're cleaning your room. You're dividing things out into the places where they're supposed to be. So you've got this chaotic mess in there and you're imposing order on it. Or you're going against entropy by taking the things and moving them and dividing them up into the place where they need to be. And that creation or establishing order is made possible by the word of God, his wind or spirit, which is establishing that order. So so you know, when I when I read that his his word, the word of God is like a two-edged sword. I go a little bit different on that and see how how powerful it is in dividing as far as imposing order on on the chaos. And and we see we see remnants of the creation when they're talking about the Lord in Isaiah. And he says, are you not him who, who hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? This idea, this dragon is like Tiamat or Rahab is this primordial monster and he cut it or his, he, he's, he's wounded the dragon. It harks back to that same type of creation story of the word of God defeating chaos and, and bringing order to a world that, that couldn't support life in the beginning to where you're going to make it so it can support life. You're going to separate the waters. You're going to create an atmosphere. You're going to put oxygen on here. You're going to put plants on here. You're going to add animals to the mix. You're, you're going to really just divide out and organize a world that, that was hostile originally to, to, to making life. And... As we impose that order on our lives, that same sword, the Word of God, is able to divide us and impose order on us in a way that, as we've talked in previous episodes, when we measure up or we follow that, we're being divided into a way that, that's going to work positively for us. And as we refuse and reject and rebel against that, then we're not measuring up. We're, we're kind of making ourselves out to be the dross or cleaving ourselves away. We're being divided by that same word as the standard that's going to be separating us. All right. In the, in the last episode, we did talk about the harvest in the last days and separating the wheat from the tares. I, and I said that this is something that's going to show up over and over again throughout Doctrine and Covenants. And now is the time for harvest as they've as they've waited when the when the enemy came through the night and put tares out in the field, they said, let's not tear it out. We might destroy the wheat. You've got to wait until the end when the wheat is ready to harvest. Then we'll bundle it up and separate it up from the tares and we'll save the wheat 
but we will burn the tares. And then you see that division again, that word of God that's going to be cleaving or dividing. His word is stating the wheat will be saved. It's divided on one side. The tares will be destroyed. It's being separated, divided on the other side. And that's how the word of God is acting as a sword in this case. And as he says that we're gathering this harvest, he he points out that those who who want to go and harvest are called to the work, and that by going in and harvesting the wheat, by working and gathering Israel, by by pulling people and and helping them along the way, really all you're doing is creating salvation to your own soul. Right? He says, if if you do this, in fact, let me just pull up the reference real quick so I can read this and not not misquote it. But he says in Doctrine and Covenants, section 6, verse 3, um, that he may treasure up for his soul everlasting salvation in the kingdom of God, referencing whoever wants to go into the harvest, into the field and, and do the harvest. You're laying up to your own soul that salvation. And, and how does that work? I think ultimately salvation is, is offered to us by following Christ. He is the model, and he says, I am the door through which men must enter. Come follow me. And we follow him by doing what he would do. As he talks about, you know, some of the images of Christ in the, in the scriptures, you think of the sheep, right? He was the, shep- uh, he was the sheep that was sacrificed on Passover. Uh, shepherds came when he was born because he was the lamb of God. But not only is he the sheep or the lamb, he is also the shepherd, right? He is the good shepherd. He is the one that that leaves the 90 and 9 to go find the one. So he is both the shepherd and the sheep. And as we talk about other images like the tree of life, Christ is the tree of life. He is the true vine. And we'll talk about that a little bit later today when we start talking about this, this rod of Aaron. But he is the vine or the tree, the symbol of the tree representing him. But then we'll also read in the scriptures that we are the tree, you know, you read about the parable in, in Jacob chapter 5 of the, the tree that's getting the branches grafted in and scattered, the allegory of the olive tree. We are the tree. And the cool thing is God became man so man might become God. And this idea that we can go out and do the work that Christ was doing to go to find that one, to to thrust in our sickle and to harvest the wheat and to gather them into bundles. We are participating in the Savior's work. We are becoming like the shepherd. And the shepherd became like the sheep so that we could become like the shepherd. And he says that invitation, that important invitation, come follow me. He, he does this uh, think about think about fasting. When we're fasting, we're giving up two meals to put ourselves in the situation of somebody who is suffering, who can't eat. And we're taking the money that we would have spent on those two meals and we're putting it towards getting food to provide for those who are needy, to provide for those who can't eat. We're putting ourselves in their shoes so that they can put themselves in into our shoes. And that's what the Savior's done for us. He came down and was born as a mortal man so that we could become immortal like him. 
and how beautiful upon the mountains are the are the feet of those who come and proclaim his gospel, right? Saviors on Mount Zion. That's what he's saying is come follow me, be like me. Anyone who is going to thrust in your sickle and do my work is going to be like me. And you're going to lay up salvation unto your soul because ultimately salvation is being like Christ. That's the only way we can get it, is by following him, and by him laying down that example and allowing us to participate in his work and and drawing a path for us to be like him and act like him, he is offering not salvation to everybody else per se, but salvation to us as we become like him. And then we offer others that opportunity to follow our example, to ultimately to follow his example, because we're trying to point everything back to him. He is the way, the path through which all men must enter to be like God. Kind of a, you know, just a an, interest, an interesting story in the Bible that didn't seem to make a lot of sense unless you look at it from that light is the story of Jacob and Esau, right? You, you wonder, why is it that the mom's playing favorites here? Why, why is it that you're trying to disguise Jacob to look like his older brother in order to get the birthright? And, and put all of that aside and look at it in the context of Christ, where he is the firstborn son. He is the only one that was perfect. He is the one that really should be receiving the blessing, but he's allowing us a way to, to receive that blessing as well as we become like him. If we if we imitate him, just as Jacob tried to imitate Esau, we can receive that firstborn inheritance. And in that light, that story, you know, as, as weird as it might sound, kind of has some bearing or significances to that that idea of, of following him. And, and again, going back to that idea that sword is dividing, right? Well, we're, we're dividing into you follow Christ and end up the way he wants to go, or the word of God will divide you into not following Christ, where you ultimately you're not ending up in the same area that or the same place where Christ ends up, right? All right. Shifting gears a little bit, something that I noticed in these sections that, that really kind of stood out to me was how personal the revelation was as, as it was given to Joseph Smith dealing with Oliver Cowdery. He's talking to, to Oliver Cowdery, about thoughts and and prayers that he had had in private that, that no one else was aware of. And, and it was just neat for me to see that God is paying attention even in the small details. We, we might think that sometimes we're small or lost in the mix or that God's got more important things to do than worry about what I'm saying or what I'm thinking. But, you know, he's, he's pulling up these thoughts through a prophet and saying, hey, you were thinking this or your prayers were like this and I understand what you're thinking. I understand what your thoughts are. I'm working with you and, and I've answered your prayers. And one of the coolest answers is when he says, did I not speak peace to your mind? Right? When I first prayed to know if the Book of Mormon was true, it, I was half expecting, I was a kid, right? I was, I was on, I, I remember I was on the top bunk of my bunk bed, my parents' small three-bedroom house, and, uh, and and I knelt down after I finished reading the Book of Mormon for the first time, and, and I really half expected to hear a voice come and, and tell me this is true, or, or have the heavens open, or some divine manifestation, like I was, I was, I was hitting for the fences on this thing. And, and I'd, I'd read Moroni's Promise, I finished the Book of Mormon, I was excited, and I prayed. And, and really, my answer, it fits really well with what he says here is, did I not speak peace to your mind? I felt in my mind like, you, you already know it's true. It's just a, conf- a, a, a more of a confirmation 
than any kind of answer. And, and I didn't think it was all that great or all that special at that time. But as I look and I relate this, a lot of times that's that's the answer we get. It's just that that peace in the mind and that reassuring confidence that that what we are thinking or what we are feeling is right. And I've come to recognize that a lot more later on. But it's it's neat to see that same answer, that same experience played out through through Oliver Cowdery and mentioned in Doctrine and Covenants and published out to the saints like, hey, this is God and this is how he talks to you. Next, there's something here um, that I've noticed a lot when the Lord says, doubt not, fear not. Because this is something repeated all throughout Old Testament. I think we even mentioned something similar to this in the last podcast where the Lord says, stand still and know that I am, right? This idea and this message that don't fear, I'm on, I'm I'm in control, doubt not, fear not. And, and it's something that he's getting these guys ready for because there's a lot of opposition that they're facing as they're they're translating the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith's first vision, the opposition that he had. But as soon as this church comes to light, it's going to get a lot worse. And the Lord's trying to prepare them and understand, you know what, I went through a lot of bad times. Look at the Savior. I mean, he was crucified. Look at what Job went through. Look at what all the prophets have gone through. Isaiah was was cut in half in a tree, for crying out loud. I mean, these guys went through some bad times, and the Lord's saying, fear not, doubt not, right? Don't worry, trust. It's it's going to get rough, but it's but but I'm on your side, and there's nothing more comforting than to know that that God is on your side, especially knowing that his plans can't be frustrated. It will work out. And maybe that's the biggest anxiety or, or worry that we have sometimes in our mind is that fear that things aren't going to quite work out or things are, are not going to be worth it at the end. But this idea, this reassuring thought that don't worry about it, it's going to be okay. It will work out exactly as I want. There's nothing more reassuring than that in my mind as they're prepared to, to jump into this work. Doctrine and Covenants um, section 7 is fascinating to me because this one, as, as Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith are translating the Book of Mormon, they have this, this thought come up. And, and this is a thought that, that scriptorians and scholars have debated for a while because it talks about John the Beloved in the New Testament and says that uh, this idea that did he die or was he going to remain on the earth forever? What happened to him? What is his fate? Because he talks about Peter's fate, and then it says, "If John will tarry, then then that don't, don't worry about that, right? That's don't." And it, and it left this question, this debate, and so Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith were were kind of going at it, trying to figure out what it was. They they each had their own opinion on this, and they agreed to consult the Urim and Thummim to find out the truth of the matter. Did John die? Or is he still alive? Or what happened to him? What is the fate of John? And what was so fascinating to me was the answer. Because it's not like they, they, they asked the Yerman Thummim and, and, and the Yerman Thummim said, John is still alive. No. The, the Yerman Thummim showed them a manuscript that John the Beloved wrote. And they translated the manuscript to, to read Doctrine and Covenants section 7. Section 7 is is scripture. It's it's a writing by John the Beloved. Did you, did you realize that, Nate? 
I had no idea. Yeah, I I thought this was crazy. It's not just a revelation. It's not just God speaking, right? How easy would it be for God to say, yeah, he's still alive and he's on the earth and I got to work for him. You know, thanks for asking. I wish that's how I pretty much got all the answers to my questions. <laughs> but, but instead, I think this is way cooler. He says, here, let me show you the answer. And then there's a translated document that John wrote down of his experience firsthand of what happened. That's, I, I don't know. It's kind of cool. And, and we think of translated scripture, we think of the Book of Mormon, we think of Pearl of Great Price, but I don't think we ever really, this fragment comes to mind that John the Beloved firsthand wrote down how he experienced this this translation that God was going to allow him to stay here on earth forever. And and then that little manuscript got lost somewhere and the Yerman Thummim dug it up, well, showed him this manuscript that was translated so that they could write it in Doctrine and Covenants. So yeah, I was impressed with that story. And and I am also impressed with... Um, Wait, but what did it say, though? Oh, the Doctrine and Covenant section 7, right? I know, but that's what I'm saying. It's like, what? what's the answer? He's still alive. He's, he's alive and kicking. It says, it. and uh, the Lord said unto John, my beloved, what desirest thou? For if you will, if uh, if you shall ask, what will I, should be granted unto you, right? And and he talks about his desire. Well, it's it's kind of cool because it fits in with what we were just talking about in section six. His desire was to thrust in his sickle and reap. He wanted to harvest and bring as many souls as he could to Christ. And then Peter's desire was to return right back to God, right? And and this desire to go and labor and and be like Christ. And ultimately that's how you get your salvation, as we were just talking, right? That the Lord said that's that's even more blessed and and you shall remain until I until I come again. Very cool. Yeah, it's a cool little story, and and it's something that you know I, I've been familiar with Doctrine and Covenant seven, but it wasn't until I was reading this "Come Follow Me" lesson that I realized that this was a this was a translated document, not not just not just something that. Well, I guess it even says it right here in Doctrine and Covenant 7, but I've never even paid attention to it. Um, but while we're on the topic, I, I just have to say I am super impressed with the Come Follow Me manual, at, at least for Doctrine and Covenants, and the resources that the church puts in for historical context and setting and what's going on. This it's It's been very amazing, very interesting to see how much detail the church has put into it. You look at Saints Volume 1, Saints Volume 2. In the last few years, the church has really kind of dug deep to to be more transparent about the history. And, and this is one area of focus, particularly Doctrine and Covenants, where I think the church shines in, in bringing about voices of the Restoration and historical context and providing the, the manual with a lot of interesting information. Speaking of information... Uh, some information. <laughs> now you've got me. The speaking of information, the 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 interesting thing to me is how we we talk about the gift of air, uh, the gift of Oliver Cowdery as this gift of revelation, but later in section nine we talk about a different gift, and they call it the gift of Aaron. And originally in the Doctrine and Covenants, it wasn't gift, but it was rod, and they said, and this is. Um, your your gift, which is the rod of Aaron. And when you hold it in your hands, you'll receive an answer from the Lord. You can ask the Lord, almost like a Urim and Thummim, anything while holding this rod, and, and he will reveal the truth to you. 
it's it's kind of interesting that you have this idea of a rod, and it's not unique with Aaron. Excuse me, it's not unique with Oliver Cowdery, this rod of Aaron. Cool story. Um, two of the 12 apostles, President Young and Heber C. Kimball, were the only two that did not apostatize or turn against Joseph Smith, reject him. And later on in life, Joseph Smith gave him a gift because of it. So uh, in, in, um, in a book about Heber C. Kimball, the accounts told, later Joseph did give him and Brigham Young rods, real rods, because they were the only ones of the original 12 who had not lifted up their hearts against the prophet. All he had to do, speaking of Heber C. Kimball, was to kneel down with the rod in his hand, and sometimes the Lord would answer his question before he had time to ask it. And it reminds me of the story, you know, we talk about this being a rod of Aaron. And do you know the context of the rod of Aaron, what the rod of Aaron was, or any of the background history there? I mean, I'd like to think that I would have some idea, and I have no idea. And, and, and you know, it seems like a familiar term, rod of Aaron, right? And, and we know about the rod of Moses, because oh, Moses... yeah. Yeah. That's you know, a rod I'm familiar with. <laughs> Moses goes in and taps the rock, and water oh, comes yeah. out of it, parts the sea, throws it down, it becomes yep. a snake, and yep, whatnot. snake. It's my favorite part of that story. <laughs> Picks it back up, and it turns back into a rod. Oh, yeah, and um, all of the medical sim- symbolism these yes. days. See? the serpent see, that he lifts serpent. up. See, I know everything about Moses' rod. Yeah, Moses' rod makes a little more sense, right? But here it's referencing Aaron's rod. Yeah, I have no idea about Aaron's rod. So let me fill you in um, what happens as Moses is taking the people out into the wilderness. And and as you know, the priesthood is is going to be bestowed on the Levites. The Levites have the priesthood. And Levi, um, Mo, Moses and Aaron come from Levi. Levi is, okay, if we get a little quick history, you got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of the 12 sons is Levi. And Levi's line all the way down to Moses and Aaron, who are brothers. And Aaron is the this line through which the priesthood is going to be carried. And you have Aaron's line specifically, which are priests, but then you also have any Levites in general through you know this family line can have the priesthood. But the rest of Israel, they don't have the priesthood. They receive inheritance in the land of Israel. So you have a tribe or a, you, you have a tribe of Judah, so you have a, a, a piece of land, a nation that's cut out for Judah, a nation that's cut out for Joseph, a nation that's cut out for Dan and Naphtali and all the all the twelve sons. Wait, is there one that's like Shem or Sham or something? Or is that what's who am I thinking of from uh, the multicolored dream coat? <laughs> musical, greatest musical ever. Shout out Donny Osmond. All right, sorry, keep going. <laughs> Okay. So they get land. They get land. All of them get land except for the Levites. They don't get land because they get the priesthood instead. That that whole line is dedicated to to priesthood. So where did they live? So they excellent question. Thank you. They they are interspersed throughout all of the other territories. They live in Dan. They live in Dan. Dan was the one that I was thinking of. <laughs> they live with Dan. Do they really? They, they live with Dan. They live with Naphtali. Oh, they, they live, live with, with Judah. Oh, okay. They live Sorry. because they're the priests. Dan, who's I was thinking of. All right. Yeah, they're the priests. So their job is to officiate the ordinances and to serve 
all of Israel as, as priests. So you would have a priest that would come live with your family, and that priest would, would administer to your family. In right? Dan land. Yeah. So there's no Levi land. The Levites are scattered through all of Israel to minister to all of them, because that was right. their inheritance was the priesthood, not land, right? Well, anyways. Were they upset about this? Because, again, like, I don't, I, you might not know the answer to this, but here's the thing. All, all that I really get out of, not all, a lot of what I get out of the children of Israel is that they're always upset about something, right? Well, so I'm just thinking to myself, like, I don't know, like was Dan, or was, was Levi's like people upset like, oh, we don't get land? Or did they realize the gravity of like the gift that they were actually given? Yeah, it's a great question because someone does get upset, in fact, gets very upset with okay. this, and it's not Levi. It's, uh, well, Levi's long gone at this point, right? Yeah. Um, there's another There's another tribe at the time of Aaron and Moses that say, aren't we just as good as, as Aaron? Why, why don't we have the priesthood? Why, why doesn't God give us the priesthood? So it's not that they're jealous at this point, at least, about land as much as the priesthood. And, and so this guy in his house said, hey, they came to, to Moses and said, hey, we, we feel that we're the ones that should be having this gift. And I think this is the important distinction here. As we talk about the gift of Aaron, we should note that Oliver Cowdery, who has the gift of Aaron or the rod of Aaron, isn't because Oliver Cowdery went and peeled off a branch of a tree and said, hey, I want this and this is now mine. This is something that God is giving him. This is a gift that comes from God. And that's an important distinction. It's not we that bestow ourselves with God's gifts. It's God that bestows us with these gifts. So Moses said, okay, I see what you're saying, and and this isn't a gift that I have to give you. It's not my decision. It's God's decision. And and to prove that this is what God wants, I, we're, we're going to have all of these tribes out here, all these families, heads of families, you're going to take a rod, and you're going to put it out on the ground, and we're just going to leave the rods alone and see what happens, right? And Aaron's rod sprouts, buds, and grows, and, and all of these other rods don't. They, they, they stagnate, right? And, and this goes in the New Testament when Christ says, I am the vine. If you want to produce fruit, it's through me, right? He is the life. He is the branch through which living fruit can be grown from. He is that source. He is that rod. And so he is saying, I chose them. This is the rod. And as that rod grows and lives and produces greenery, that, that's, that's like the gift of Aaron right here. This is God's source. He is going to be giving him, and it's cool that they associate this, revelation. It's life. It's, it's new, right? It's, it's hearing the word of God. It's not being dead. It's being livened because you're, you're able to, to hear and be quickened by, by the Lord, that revelation. And uh, the story doesn't end so well for, for the branches or the rods that don't sprout any any branches because not only do they not get the priesthood but then the earth opens up and swallows, swallows them whole right. right right yeah you remember this story yeah, it's just now just, we're talking about the stuff i love in the old testament <laughs> it's just a little refresher course that's right now i remember but it's cool that you have these tie-ins in 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 modern day latter-day saint church history as well you've got this branch and it's living and and not living necessarily in that it's sprouting as much as living in that it's revelatory that this is a connected to christ when you're holding it and you're founded on christ and god he will give you truth and it's it's much of a gift that we all have when we're where we're holding the iron rod which is which is a source 
of truth, the word of God, we, we are open and, and able to receive that revelation. And, and I think it's cool, you, you know, you read about Heber C. Kimball and, and his rod and Brigham Young and their rod, and, and it fits into that, that same idea, you know, you've got 12 apostles, and, and as soon as the 12 apostles, as soon as 12, 10 of them had rejected Joseph Smith, you know, they, they had decided to separate themselves from the vine, from Christ, from being able to receive revelation. And because these other two had remained true and faithful, they, they, were, they were given a symbol of that obedience. That, be, that Because of that, they would be able to have their prayers answered. The Lord would hear them, would be giving them revelation. Their, their rods were alive. Awesome. And despite having these rods or this source where you can always just receive the answer, God still wants to remind us that, that just because we can doesn't mean that God's just going to give us everything. You know, it's, it's like trying to hatch a bird by pulling the shell off the egg and, and, and the bird doesn't get strong enough to even survive, right? There's, there's some work that we have to do on our end. So to counterbalance these, these gifts of revelation and these tokens from God saying, this is what it symbolizes and I'll be there and asking you shall receive— we have this story in section nine when Oliver Cowdery asked for the ability to translate. And, and so he's going to translate these plates and he's looking and, and it's just not going as he thought. And God answers, answers uh, the, the, this question, this quandary of why he can't translate even though it's his gift. And God says, you took no thought save it were to ask me only. And going back to Joseph Smith's first vision, right? We can't, even, even though we have access to God and he says, ask and you shall receive, knock and it shall be open. Even though it says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Still, let's not forget that Joseph Smith spent a lot of time trying to, to attend every meeting as, as occasion would permit, trying to study the scriptures, trying to find out on his own. Even this revelation about um, John the Beloved and whether he stayed or whether he died or what his fate was, didn't come without first having a discussion until they get to the point where they're going to turn to that, right? So even if we have access to God, and, and even if he's there willing to answer our questions and answer our prayers, a lot of times what the Lord wants to see from us first is to take effort into trying to come to our own conclusion, figure out what it is, find out, like the scientific method, but you can't just go testing if you don't even have a hypothesis you're, you're, you're testing. Figure out what that hypothesis is first. Find out what you think it is. Find out what, what you think the answer to your prayer is. And then when you've come to a decision, bring that decision to the Lord and ask if that's right. Because the Lord says you must first do everything in your power and then can you stand still with the utmost assurance to know that the Lord will deliver you. But he's not going to sit there and deliver you every time without you putting in that work first. So it's, it's kind of a cool reminder to just counterbalance that, that gift that he's given him of, of revelation. Awesome. All right, thanks for listening. Next week, we're going to be diving into February's lesson, which is going to be dealing with the cunning of the adversary to try to destroy this work even before it begins, and the wisdom of the Lord being even more powerful than that, knowing what was going to happen, kind of how we talked about in a few episodes ago about how the ways of the Lord are, are not going to come to naught. They won't be frustrated. And we're going to talk about how that works with us as we prepare ourselves for whatever work we have and some of the frustrations or, or things that might lie in our way and how the Lord prepares us to help overcome those and deal with those challenges. All right, until next time. See ya. See ya.